as we enter 2022. In this episode, we will look back at some of our greatest Brains Bite Back clips of last year. And since we did a best of episode halfway through 2021, right before we took a break, this roundup will primarily focus on episodes from the second half of the year. It will include clips from mapping the avenues of addiction in our brains, AI-assisted recruiting will help put education alongside career path, finding solutions to the challenges of the new decentralized workforce, augmentation or full takeover, exploring AI's growing presence in the workplace. So let's kick off with mapping the avenues of addiction in our brains, where we spoke with Dr. Gail Saltz, the Associate Professor of Psychiatry at the NY Presbyterian Hospital, while Cornell School of Medicine, and the host of the How Can I Help podcast from iHeartRadio. In this clip, we discuss how a listener can tell if they potentially have a social media addiction, and we explore how buying and selling crypto could represent a gambling addiction if unchecked. Disclosure, this episode contains a client of an Espacio portfolio company. I would personally say that I don't have an issue with social media as far as I'm aware, but that's probably going to be hopefully and potentially solved or clarified with like my next question, which is how can our listeners recognize if they are addicted to social media? So, I, yes, I would say social media quote addiction i would i would keep it in quotes mm -hmm. it means a compulsive need to keep engaging with social media that and these were the questions that you really should ask yourself you know are you so preoccupied with either planning to look at social media or planning to post or planning whatever the planning of all of the social media and the doing of all the social media, are, do you would you describe yourself as particularly preoccupied? Are you planning or looking in such a way with such frequency that it is negatively affecting one or more arenas of your life? Like um, you're doing so much of it that whoever you're in a relationship with at home is really annoyed. That you know, you, you look glued to your phone, and that's what's most important. That's what you're doing, or you're doing it at work. Um, I know many people are working from home now. Maybe people aren't going to see you doing it, um, but basically, you're not being as productive as you would normally be at work because you're spending so much time with your social media. Um, is it negatively affecting your finances? Are you not doing things that, you know, would help you make money, basically, you know, make, you know, be, be work related um, because you're doing social media, media, or are you alternatively spending? And that, you know, this can be a thing that people do also related to, to social media, spending a lot of money and or time, time is money, um, related to social media. Are you secretive about how much time like maybe your partner saying my gosh like I come on you know I can't have a conversation with you you're you're always on the phone so much or like we're sitting at a restaurant and you're you're social mediating while we're, we're out to dinner and so you're sort of like trying to like secretively slip it in you know I, I gotta go to the bathroom and then you're whipping out your phone while you're in the bathroom so that you can get it in mm -hmm. and have you and this is probably most importantly in some ways, are you aware it's too much? And maybe you've tried to cut back or stop. And maybe you were able to do it for a little while, but you really creep right back in. Or maybe you really can't stop at all. Mm -hmm. 
now now that you said that um i can honestly say yeah i'm pretty sure i don't have a social media addiction <laughs> i've never really um yeah exhibited those sorts of things however one thing has come to mind and it, it's not really too alarming because it's not in that direction necessarily but i'd be really interested to know if you have spoken with or anyone's approached you or you've had any interaction really with, with regards to cryptocurrency and i asked that and I'll, I'll give you the the reason why is because um for a long time i've been into cryptocurrency and um i think maybe about a year ago maybe like seven months ago i used to say to my girlfriend like oh no i've lost this much money or i've like gained this so i'd talk to her about it she wasn't that interested but then uh, she got a little bit curious because she wants to buy some then she got more into it and now she's fully into it like myself and the thing is is we have like these games where we will set up a certain price we want to buy certain stuff at and we'll choose other things it's almost like gambling in a way like correct. picking your horses correct um, so we have these games almost like where we pick a coin or we have this little little competition and we keep it in check like i'm quite um i would like to consider myself controlled and i, I do a good job of saying the same term like no don't don't put more don't put money in don't put more than you're willing to lose don't put more than you can afford to lose it's just it is gambling it is mm -hmm. a game but it is gambling and this mm -hmm. is and not only that but it taps into something very primitive within us where we have this uh i don't know instinct that we see money going up or down and we freak out and it really taps into something so you have to be really in control not to let it get a hold of you mm -hmm. so that is the long version of what i'm trying to ask here like have you seen more people um, come to you for this because I definitely say my girlfriend and I we don't really have an issue with social media but what could develop to be more of an issue or along the lines of what you talked about like checking our accounts like she does it all the time I'm like are you checking are you checking Binance are you checking this and mm -hmm. she'll be like no and I know she is so I'm just right. curious to know if you've encountered that recently so I would say specifically people are not coming to me saying I'm concerned I have a cryptocurrency addiction or I, I'm compulsive or, you know, but let me explain probably why that's the case. People also don't tend to come to psychiatrists to say they have a gambling addiction of any sort. Um, it's, and the reason is basically um, people who have compulsive behaviors like this generally don't want to be stopped. Um, they feel they get a certain high a good feeling after the as you just said checking right mm -hmm. and that good feeling is a positive reinforcer for the behavior and they don't want to give that up they you know that that's that's pleasurable and the pleasurable feeling keeps the behavior reinforced and the and the, and the not doing it would make them feel not good certainly at least in the moment if not longer so generally people do not come to see a mental health professional about frankly any addictions until you know as they say they've hit rock bottom you know until things are so terrible um and so you know destroyed in their lives that they feel maybe they don't have any other choice or they've even been mandated to do that by people in their family um, or by courts. Uh, so it's not, an, it's not, in other words, telling you no is not a surprise. People don't tend to come in for those sorts of problems because they don't, people come to the psychiatrist when they want something to stop, something that doesn't feel good. 
like depression or anxiety. Now, some of these behaviors, even like the involvement with cryptocurrency that you described, can be driven by underlying depression and anxiety. And this has actually been like a compulsive behavior developed as, a, as a, an attempt to relieve themselves of those feelings. I feel anxious a lot or I feel down a lot. When I do this checking, I feel good. Ah, that's a relief. And of course, without treating the underlying depression or anxiety, you know, this behavior isn't likely to be easy to stop. So maybe if they do land in my office for depression or anxiety and we uncover that this is something that's also going on, then treating them, you know, I, I might see that behavior and I would treat them for the depression and the anxiety and we would come to understand that to some degree the compulsive checking is, you know, driven somewhat by those mood states. Or alternatively, and this is another thing I advise people to think about, where does compulsive checking come from? So it could be like an ongoing mood issue, or it could be you stumbled into it as just like you're saying like, like oh, this seems like kind of a fun place to put my money and like, this is fun. But then maybe it turns out you're a person who when I say by nature, I mean, biologically speaking, has a tendency to be maybe more obsessive, more perfectionistic, um, and, and you know, has maybe some obsessive compulsive disorder that runs in your family or obsessiveness that runs in your family. Those people are more likely to sort of accidentally go down the rabbit hole of being a checker and, um, and this kind of thing, or a propensity to addiction if addiction runs in your family the propensity to to walk down this road and so knowing something about that about yourself about your family history is really helpful you know there are people who can go to las vegas and gamble and do what you say you're doing you know uh, oh like i'm gonna play some blackjack i'm gonna hit some slots i put aside this much money for my quote entertainment gambling is entertaining for me and then they really have no problem stopping there. Like that's the end. And they go, oh, I'll come back next year. I'll do this because it's like, I spent the amount of money I would spend to see, you know, this, these shows or this restaurants and whatever. And that's fun for me. But as you know, there are a lot of people who go and then they, they can't stop. They've lost. And then they figure out how to get more money so they can keep going. And then they end up in big trouble. So similarly with cryptocurrency, I would agree with you. It has the potential to be a compulsive behavior or an addictive type of behavior, but it isn't gonna be for everybody. Um, it, and, and so I, I can't just say it will always, and there people can use social media in a reasonable way. They enjoy it, they, they don't get stuck. And similarly with cryptocurrency, I would say to you, you know, if you're like, I know I'm gonna put this much money in, it's not gonna harm me. I find it enjoyable. It's fun. If I lose it, okay. Um, you know, I'm not going to be like, oh my gosh, I gotta, I have to find more to put it in. And then the question is, how much are you checking? So if your girlfriend is like secretively checking a lot and it's causing distress or constant peaks of excitement, but in between those peaks of excitement, feeling low or feeling anxious. And then she really, if she breaks it down, she's checking again so she can get rid of that feeling so she can have the excited feeling again. Then that would be like a little concerning, you know, because it would, that's what keeps you locked in too much. Augmentation or full takeover. 
exploring AI's growing presence in the workplace. Now, for this one, we speak with Dale Smith, founder and EVP at orchestral.ai. In this clip, we explore how society and our economy will cope if AI takes over a large number of jobs and the majority of humans find themselves unemployed. I would uh, love to ask you as a, the final question, like if AI does take over an increasing number of jobs and the rate of employment decreases for humans as a result, what could this mean for society economically and for those who are put out of work? Now, I know you're not an economist, uh, but I'd still love to hear your thoughts on this. Wow, that's a big one. Um, I think there is some anticipation of this, which is readily observable. Um, around us even now and for some years already. And I talked about two stages of, of AI, uh, the first being one where AI augments, the, the second one being where, where AI um, uh, enters into a more predictive capability. And if there's a third and a fourth and a fifth, uh, then yes, the, the, the implications for humans and what we associate with modern human existence are, are pretty dramatic. And, probably bordering on almost dystopian, uh, at least for a period of time. There'll be a period of time in which people will have to get accustomed and, and will need to reconceptualize uh, what it means to, to live in a modern society. And every one of us, and I'm, certainly, I'm sure it's certainly true for, for all the listeners who will be listening to this program, we wake up in the morning and we, we think about things to do with our work, our profession, uh, that's the centerpiece of what that's the organizing principle for our lives. It's, it's how we make money to, to, to pay the bills and, and take care of the necessities in life. If all of that is suddenly uh, displaced, you know, that's a, that's a big fat question mark black hole. But when I said earlier that there are some, there's already some early evidence of thinking around this, I was referring to the experiments in what's called universal basic income, UBI. And if you do the research and, and you say do a Google trend line research over time, you'll see that there's much more an increasing amount of discussion around, around this. And there've been some experiments uh, across Europe and Spain and Finland, uh, and even in some areas in the US. The concept there is real simple. Um, people are uh, allocated a certain basic income to take care of their daily needs in the event of their displacement due to AI and related technologies. I think you'll find that the results are mixed. Uh, some people, certainly in the beginning, would welcome the idea that, wow, you know, I have free money, I don't have to, I don't have to worry about deadlines and going into an office and doing all the things that we, we normally associate with work. What could be better? But when you unpack that, you know, that level of dependency would tend to re remove um, a lot of our reason for being um, and there are psychological implications to that that um, I think are still being studied and not much conclusive can say about it. The, the irony, you know, there's a hidden irony here and that is that as AI technologies make businesses more efficient and more productive, you know, it opens up the question uh, of who, who will actually be employed to consume the output of industry if many humans are displaced from the workforce due to AI. Now, that's the one thing I haven't seen much discussion on in the circles where these topics are taken up, um, but that's quite the conundrum. And I think 
ultimately, you're going to see much more talk and much more policy prescriptions around the concept of universal basic income uh, as we go through this uh, transition phase of people getting accustomed to or adapting to, not getting accustomed to, but adapting to the, uh, the displacements that uh, the AI uh, inevitably seem to suggest at some point in the future. Not quite sure how far out that is. Mm -hmm. uh, some folks would say it's sooner than we uh, expect, and uh, and perhaps that's true. Yeah. This is going to this is a big topic, and it will it's really incumbent upon everyone to to take this uh, seriously, mm -hmm. and at a minimum begin to uh, understand a little bit about AI and what it what it what it is, how it works. Take a look at yourself and begin to understand what impact it could potentially have uh, mm -hmm. on, on your current way of living. And begin now to uh, anticipate reskilling and, and retraining. This is something people have to take on uh, as you know a responsibility up to, onto themselves. Um, otherwise, uh, you know they may find themselves uh, uh, displaced. Um, without notice. And mm -hmm. I think that's, that's the worst case scenario. Yeah. I think like you mentioned, UBI looks like it has some promise. Admittedly, uh, I too have seen the, the mixed results from it, which is a shame because in theory, I really like the idea of it. I think everyone does. Like you mentioned, it's, I suppose on the surface, it looks like free money, um, but mm -hmm. also it looks like a, a tool or a solution to this problem. We'll just have to see how it goes. But I definitely mm -hmm. think that work will be necessary. I remember seeing one psychology study which actually said 20 hours a week is the optimum amount of time to work. Uh, because mm -hmm. I think anything less than that, you kind of get a sensation of, I don't know, maybe not feeling like useful. I certainly know that some people experience this when they retire. So I've heard, yeah, it'll be strange, but it will also be nice. The idea of us maybe striving to, to meet the optimal amount of working hours for human happiness, rather than just working to pay the bills. Um, mm -hmm. that would be a nice future. Let's hope it turns out like that and not uh, a dystopia that we've kind of touched upon briefly. <laughs> yeah. It's yeah. interesting, the, this fine line between utopia and dystopia. Mm. This is something that has fascinated me for a long time. So, you know, some, some uh, visionaries who, who opine around AI or will paint the picture of, you know, the, the 10 to 20 hour work week and, and the rest of your time is is spent, you know, painting and pursuing your hobbies and, and writing, you know, great books and and you know, finding cures for cancer and that sort of thing. And, and I scratch my head and ask myself, when was that ever true? <laughs> that, when has that ever happened? It's certainly not in, in any historical timeline I'm familiar with. So I think the utopian uh, vision uh, is certainly good. It's yeah. certainly good marketing material. Um, <laughs> But it's a fine line uh, between the, that utopian vision of the, the, the future of, of work in the world of AI and uh, this, the dystopian, the more dystopian uh, vision of the same. AI-assisted recruiting will help put education alongside career path. In our next clip, we speak with Sunny Saurabh, co-founder and CEO of interviewer.ai, who highlights the benefits of AI-assisted hiring. With scalability, you're able to interview every single candidate. And we cannot take this phrase lightly because, you know, companies like, say, Google, um, Facebook, LinkedIn, Amazon, they get millions and millions of applicants each year. Um, there's no way you can interview every single application by, by deploying human 
recruiters and hiring managers, right? So how do you interview everyone? Uh, you have to use technology. So that's the scalability that we bring in as a platform. Uh, the second is objectivity. Um, now, there is ample research to prove that resume alone is not a great predictor of future job performance. Um, and, and mostly because you rely, uh, when you look at a resume, you are relying on two things, your past experience and um, academic qualifications. And both have, both have been uh, proven on research after research to be poor predictors of future job performance. Um, what has been better predictors of job performance are uh, general mental ability, structured interviews, which companies like Google, um, and LinkedIn have been doing it for ages, like for 10 years. It's now now with you know tools like ours, um, tools like interview.ai that you can bring that objectivity uh, across uh, companies of, of different sizes. Um, and lastly, speed. I mean, if, if I'm running a business um, and I have to hire three people across the US, Europe, um, I do not have the time to go through uh, 50 applicants. Uh, you put a one job on LinkedIn, you have something called Easy Apply now. Um, you get hundreds and hundreds of applications. Who's got the time to go through it? Um, so how do you stack rank them basis the skills you want? And um, if you decide later that your requirements change and you change your skills, can the stack rank change? So that's basically you know, the, the beauty of platform, uh, a platform like ours. And I think it's gonna be the future of recruitment. Yeah, it definitely seems necessary, especially when you have so many people applying for one job. And in the face of the pandemic, I, I know things are more or less like making a recovery, but I know that like jobs were difficult to come by. A lot of people lost their jobs. A lot of people were applying for jobs and new jobs. So I like when you do have one job and you've got hundreds of people or potentially even thousands applying, you're absolutely right. It's just not feasible by human standards to just go through and sift all of them realistically without risking like missing someone that's perfect for the job. Mm -hmm. I also mm -hmm. say like one thing I've noticed, I've never actually hired anyone. Uh, maybe it'll happen. I've never really been in a position where I've wanted to or needed to. However, one thing that I do know from having superiors that do hire people frequently, it does seem to be one of the most stressful parts of their job. So I think having the ability to outsource that or at least make it more efficient sounds like it would do wonders for yeah many people in many positions across a lot of companies uh, absolutely absolutely so in singapore um i was working at linkedin and i had to hire for hong kong and australia uh, i was hiring for my team uh, a solutions consultant role and both you know both locations are so different culturally and I'm sitting here in Singapore. How do I how do I make that judgment based on a few resumes? So it's really really hard. Um, it's really tough, and that's that's why I thought um, we'd we'd create interview.ai. Awesome. Well, my next question, like it more focuses on I suppose a drawback, uh, which I'd really like to get your thoughts on, because we know that AI inherits the biases of humans. So how can AI objectively rate candidates without picking up these biases? Yeah, so this has been um, something that we've been concerned with day one, you know, and um, I don't know how much you follow the HR tech space, but there are so many different algorithms that predict um, top, top hires. Um, but we have to accept the fact that hiring by nature is subjective. Um, 
you being in a hiring manager's position versus me or, or five other people would, would choose different candidates from the same pool of ap applicants. Um, because you would have a different understanding of your team's requirements, which, which you need in, in your team versus me or somebody else. So it is subjective and we have to understand there's no uh, silver bullet uh, where you can just say, all right, here's the system and here's the number one candidate, hire this person. So how do you um, take away that bias, right? So um, what we do is we have realized that recruiters do not completely understand the hiring manager's needs. Um, so how, why don't we rely more on the hiring manager's data as to who they shortlist, who they hire, and what happens in six months? Do they still rate them as a good performer? Do they still retain them after a year, two years? So this process is going to take a few years for us, but uh, when you rely on the hiring managers data, they are performers. They, that's not somebody who impressed during an interview or impressed the recruiter or came through a connection or a referral. Um, it's somebody who's doing a job. And so we need to get that rating right. And, um, and we want to collect this across hiring managers, across the world, uh, across job functions, across industries. And it might take us five years to get uh, get to do this scalably across all roles uh, globally, right? But I think we'll get there. Um, so I think that the answer to this question is like, you, you have to take it from an explainable AI approach rather than a black box AI approach as to um, just let the system do the calculations. Let's, let the, let's just trust the algorithm. I don't think that will work ever. Finding solutions to the challenges of the new decentralized workforce. And finally, we speak with Sergio Matai, founder of Index, where we discuss how he has overcome the challenges of working and hiring remote teams and how you can too. I'm sure you've had a lot of experience all over the world. And given your experience, I'd love to hear what you think are the greatest hurdles when hiring talent internationally. Yeah, so uh, finding talent, I think, is, is the number one uh, uh, challenge particularly sourcing or trying to understand who is your ideal candidate and where can you find them. It's much easier when, let's say, you, you, you hire based on your zip code or uh, your uh, city, but once you start looking internationally and assessing talent uh, globally, then um, you, you, have, you go into different uh, nuances of every country, uh, has its own job board uh, site or a specific language or approach uh, to source talent. Nevertheless, I, over, over the years, I've found out the best way to, to, to find talent is through referral. However, when, when, you, when you recruit globally outside of, of your network, then maybe this approach doesn't work. So your second best shot is to do more outbound, more outreach, uh, build a relationship, uh, connect with local communities when, you, when you're sourcing and looking to hire internationally. Or perhaps you can um, access a talent network like Index. We managed to grow about 300% just this year and also another 300% last year. Even in the pandemic, we saw a big uh, spike in, in uh, companies uh, looking to hire remotely. And once you want to hire remotely, then there is no limits or there is no barrier where you can hire uh, the talent. That's some impressive growth, especially during a pandemic. Well done. Now, 
I would be curious as well. I I know um this might uh, be a curveball question, but like how international is your team? Like which corners of the world do you have people in at the moment? And um yeah, I'd just be interested to to hear a selection of the the nationalities that you got on your team. So at the index we uh, we have uh, people based in UK, uh, we have people based in France, Italy. Uh, we have uh, a big part of our employees in Moldova. And we have uh, colleagues in Uzbekistan. We just uh, um, hired somebody from, uh, I think, from uh, a neighbor country, uh, Kyrgyzstan, or we just made an offer to a colleague fr- from, from that region. Uh, also having developers in uh, Colombia, in uh, uh, Ukraine, uh, Armenia, um, India, Pakistan. I enjoy this diverse uh, uh, this diverse group of people, uh, talent that we, we managed to to get together. It sounds like a real mixing pot. It sounds also like you're kind of uh, collecting one from each country as you go. I mean, as you expand, <laughs> naturally, that's going to be the, the case, I'm sure. It's not a bad goal to have. At least then you have like an understanding of uh, cultures from literally everywhere. And I'd, I would love to know like uh, what the, like the, about the cultural nuances of hiring developers you have experienced um i mean for example like i am from the uk but i live in colombia and there's definitely a difference in how business is conducted but um there's clearly differences when it comes to business and work ethic and just so many ways uh so i'd love to know like for example like why hiring in germany why would that be extremely different from hiring in colombia for example yeah so uh, for example in germany when when you're doing um sourcing or trying to find talent, you would find out that a lot of people use Xing, not LinkedIn, for example, compared maybe to, to other countries in Europe. At the same time, we see people in uh, in, in CE region or uh, LATAM uh, tend to be more humble in a way or shy compared to, let's say, US or UK or uh, Germany. And I'm coming from this CE region and we don't brag about our achievements or not so often we're, we Maybe we we kind of um, um, try to be, you know, uh, like humble. Would you say? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, humble. Yeah, yeah, mm. yeah, more humble. When recruiting, you cannot assume that the applicant has told you everything about their skills, their experience, their extracurricular activities. Uh, I remember once I interviewed an engineer, uh, and I, just by accident, I discovered that he was building rockets. You know, and for him, that was pretty normal. And um, but you want to. Uh, to find out um, and and try to have a sort of um, dig deeper and try to understand, maybe give them some examples of uh, accolades that impresses you and that you can ask them uh, if that's something they can relate to or they have some similar experiences and then you can find out some hidden talent or uh, people that perhaps are Olympic medalists in maps or uh, they worked for big sort of uh, state company and did implemented bigger uh, projects that um, you might find fascinating. Growing a company has many hurdles, from securing funding to expanding your business capabilities to ranking better on search. Each business challenge is uniquely complex. The solution to these challenges is growth-focused digital PR and marketing, and that's where our sponsor Publicize comes in. Publicize sets itself apart from traditional PR companies. It does not charge large retainers or churns out press releases whether you've got a newsworthy announcement or not. 
Publicize builds on your business's online presence and gets high quality PR and media coverage for startups and entrepreneurs who are priced out of a broken PR industry. And for a limited time only, exclusive to Brains Bite Back listeners, you can receive a social media assessment as part of your package for any tier of service at no extra charge with this special promotion. To find out more, visit publicize.co slash BBB. That's publicize.co slash BBB. This is the end of today's show. Thank you so much for listening. If you like this and you want to hear more episodes just like it, then follow and subscribe to Brains Bite Back wherever you get your podcasts. We're also available on YouTube under the channel of our publication, The Sociable. Just search Brains Bite Back and you'll find all of our episodes there. We really love hearing what you have to say. So leave us a review on iTunes or on any other podcasting platform to let us know what you think. You can also reach out on Twitter at, at The Sociable. And finally, go to sociable.co where you can find all our episodes and plenty of articles on topics just like this. Thanks again for joining us and until next time, stay safe and stay healthy.